The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sporkbox with Juliana and myself today. Here are your headlines. Asian equities declined, defying gains on Wall Street after dovish Fed comments signal a policy pivot could come sooner than expected. I am increasingly confident that policy is currently well positioned to slow the economy and get inflation back to 2%. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman bets on a Fed rate cut as soon as the first quarter next year, flagging the risk of a hard landing if it doesn't bring rates down. And Finland closes all its land borders with Russia after Helsinki accuses Moscow of deliberately helping migrants enter the country. The Finnish Foreign Affairs Minister tells me their decision sends a strong signal. They have been mobilizing people um, to access Finland and the European Union uh, through that route. Um, we consider this uh, to be a hybrid operation by Russia and we have responded accordingly. And tributes for a titan. Berkshire Hathaway's Charlie Munger dies at the age of 99. On the market yesterday, we're given the news like a kid in a candy store that they can sample some of the treats and uh, what we had yesterday, markets that have been salivating over Fed rate cuts in 2024, given an update by one of the Fed speakers that there will be rate cuts coming within a matter of months at some point if inflation comes down. So what we've got for markets that have moved very aggressively, you've got to say a very modest reaction. So does that tell you how stretched positioning has already become around the narrative around monetary policy? You've got uh, about a third of a percent on the NASDAQ, still top performing part of the market. But if you look at uh, the course of of the trading month uh, across major markets, 7% up for the Dow, 8.6 up on the S&P so far, and 11% for the trading month in November on the NASDAQ. So already front-loaded in some terms of some of those percentage gains by sectors. Uh, you can see it, it's been across in the big tech names from FANGs to what we've seen across in the banks. And uh, yesterday, just another dose on top. Remarkable if you look at the big momentum plays too. And Tesla, don't forget, back one of the stocks to trade yesterday. The ARK Innovation Fund was up 2.75%, fourth positive session in a row. So underlying this market of modest gains, still momentum in those big moving stocks. 33% higher for the ARK Innovation Fund for the trading month of November. So again, we've had a huge swing on the fact that markets think that perhaps we will get some movement on rates next year. The question is timing, first quarter, second quarter, or later next year. I want to take you to Treasuries, and we certainly saw some movement in the bond market again yesterday, continuing that trend of what we've seen in recent weeks. Uh, that 10-year yield, we got down to 4.35% at one stage, and you can see morning session 4.28 is what we're now watching, 4.68 at the short end, so pushing well off that 5% handle as markets position around short-term rates. In terms of the dollar, the dollar fade has been evident. It supported other currencies as a result, and we're seeing fairly large moves as a result. Uh, sterling dollar 127.06. So we're up about a 
tenth of a percent on cable morning session. In terms of the uh, trade around euro dollar, you can see we're just shy of one ten this morning. So a three and a half month high is what we're seeing for euro versus the dollar. For the Japanese yen, <clears throat> we've seen the dollar yen trade the lowest level now since the twelfth of September. We've had a drop of about two percent in the matter of about three days. One forty seven nineteen. So the one fifty plus level, we seem to bid farewell to those trading windows. Two tenths to the downside for dollar yen and morning session there is a, a casualty too for the greenback versus the yuan a drop of about a third of a percent so uh, let's push on from the dollar decline to the asian markets and what we've got across the region it's a bit of a mixed bag considering we've had a green handover from wall street and we're getting this message of a friendly monetary policy environment in 2024 we've got a retreat again uh, for japanese stocks this has been a market that has rebounded very strongly in recent months so perhaps uh, some softening up in the positioning there about a quarter of a percent down the hong kong market 2.4 to the downside so steeper falls there versus what you're seeing on Chinese stocks. Australia, though, to the upside, playing in lockstep with those U.S. markets. And speaking of which, let's see what the day ahead holds as we count down to the session. Don't forget we get more information later this week. The PCE, this is going to be the Fed's preferred inflation gauge out later this week. So perhaps the data could be useful in reinforcing any messages. But we are called to the upside. We've got 50 on Dow Jones futures at this stage. Good morning, Juliana. Karen, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you so yeah. early in the morning. Great Thanks for having day. me. Um, well, let's get to some of that data that you alluded to that we already had. Of course, there is more to come this week. But yesterday, we got some U.S. GDP figures. Growth is forecast to hit 5% in the third quarter, slightly higher than the first estimate. Uh, this is actually coming up. Last month's preliminary figure of 4.9% driven largely by consumer spending and increased inventory. Some market watchers slash, slash expectations of a U.S. recession and all but rule out a final rate hike from the Fed at its December meeting. Now, today's GDP print is just one in a key series of key data points that could di dictate the Fed's monetary path into the year end. On Tuesday, U.S. home prices posted a 3.9% rise on the year, according to the Case-Shiller Home Index. And then today, alongside those GDP numbers, we'll also get the Fed Beige Book. Thursday sees U.S. personal consumption expenditures, or PCE inflation, often cited as the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation gauge. And we close the week with U.S. manufacturing PMIs. Speaking before a live audience on Tuesday, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby said that although inflation is still not down to its 2% target, 2023 will have seen a historic reduction in inflationary pressures. Overall, we have made progress on inflation outside of, of the food sector. It's been coming down. It's not yet down to target, but 2023, we are on path to set the highest drop in the inflation rate in 71 years. Meanwhile, Fed Governor Christopher Waller got a ton of attention when he said he's convinced the benchmark rate is sitting at the right level for inflation to continue declining while engineering a soft landing for the economy. I am encouraged by the early signs of moderating economic activity in the fourth quarter based on the data in hand. Inflation is still too high. And it is too early to say whether the slowing we are seeing will be sustained. But I am increasingly confident that policy is currently well positioned to slow the economy and get inflation back to 2%. A robust U.S. economic performance and dovish Fed speak have seen markets effectively rule out a rate hike in December. Meanwhile, markets are now pricing in a 70% chance the Fed will first cut rates in May. 
Billionaire investor Bill Ackman is taking an even more dovish position on the Fed's path, telling Bloomberg he sees a cut in the first quarter of 2024, adding that the Fed risks a hard landing if it keeps rates higher for longer than needed. Let's get to David Sequeira, who is chief U.S. market strategist at Morningstar. David, it felt as though the markets had gorged on risk appetite in the month of November with a running out of steam. But now we've got more news from Fed speakers that, look, those rate cuts could be coming in 2024. How much further do you think this market can run on fairly dovish Fed commentary now? Well, the Santa Claus rally definitely came earlier this year. You know, the Morningstar U.S. market index is up about 9% just in November alone. And I think that's one of the strongest readings that we've seen in November you know, over history. But at this point, following that run up, the market now is only trading at about a 3% discount to a composite of our fair values. So I think the market is starting to run out of steam you know, for the rest of this year. In fact, I'm really starting to turn my focus more towards next year. And I think the risks of the market now is going to be in that you know, February, March timeframe once companies start you know, not just reporting their 2023 earnings for the fourth quarter, but giving guidance and some body language for 2024. And I think a lot of that guidance is very likely to be cautious. So looking forward, you know, we still like value stocks here. You know, we think that's a good category to be overweight. They're trading at about a 15% discount to our fair value. Uh, we'd actually be market weight core or blend stocks. Those are trading pretty much in line with the broad market discount. But at this point, we'd actually now start recommending the underweight growth stocks. They're trading at about a 3% premium to our fair value. David, it's interesting you picked up on the earnings and the profile for companies because one of the arguments for holding stocks at this point is that they've navigated higher credit costs fairly well at this stage and are in good shape. Are you saying in 2024 this could undermine the journey that even though we've had a re-rating around monetary policy, it's earnings that is going to hold the market back? Well, I do think the earnings are going to be at risk in the first half of next year. So we're actually also in the soft landing camp. You know, our U.S. economics team is predicting you know, no recession for next year. But having said that, between the tight monetary policy, you know, relatively high interest rates, as well as you know, higher lending standards, that's all going to take their toll on the economy. So we do forecast that the rate of economic growth is going to end up slowing sequentially each quarter, next quarter, all the way until the third quarter of 2024. So here in the fourth quarter, we're only looking for 1.7% GDP growth, slowing to 1% in the first quarter, going below 1% to 7 tenths in the second quarter, getting pretty close to stall speed in the third quarter before we start moving back up again in the first quarter. So I do think that the market does have you know, some tough times ahead of it probably over the next couple of quarters. But for longer term investors, we do still see value in a lot of different areas of the marketplace today. David, you talk about value stocks as being your preferred play within equities. Um, can you give us a sense of what sectors you think look most attractive here and what's going to be the catalyst for some of those value stocks to appreciate? Yeah, I mean, actually, the most undervalued sector right now is the real estate sector. So that got hit very hard over the course of this year for a couple of different reasons. One, you know, just the higher interest rates, you know, have brought the valuations of real estate in general down. But there was also a lot of concern with urban office space, you know, how much valuation is at risk there. And I think that contagion spread to the rest of the real estate market. Now, I would still steer well clear of urban office space, but there's a lot of other areas that we think have just gotten beaten up too much. You know, there's a couple of different defensive type plays like the healthcare area. You know, Ventas would be our pick there. You know, one of the larger REITs, you know, in the healthcare space. It's a stock we rate with five stars. That's our highest rating. It trades at a 34% discount. 
you know, I'd look in the real estate area, maybe for some that have improving fundamentals like class A shopping malls. You know, Simon Property Group is a four star rated stock, trades at a 19% discount. And I also like some of the you know, deep value plays. The cell towers are undervalued. And then lastly, I'd look for real estate that we think have good long-term structural tailwinds, such as the data centers that I think will benefit over time, just as we see more artificial intelligence you know, require the additional need. What about mega cap tech? I mean, you said you, you, mm -hmm. you're not necessarily put off by growth stocks, but the Magnificent Seven are sort of in a league of their own, I think, when it comes to valuation and, and the consideration within the growth category. Um, how do those valuations look to you? Pretty full. So, you know, the Magnificent Seven coming into the year, six of those seven stocks, we rated either four or five stars that they were pretty significantly undervalued. At this point, I think that for the most part, they've run their course. There's only one of the seven that's still undervalued. That's Alphabet trades at a 15% discount to our fair value. You know, the rest are fairly valued other than Apple. Apple is now a two star rated stock that trades at about a 27% discount. I'm sorry, 27% premium to our fair value. So that's one where we do think it's actually a good time to be taking some profit there. So thinking about 2024, looking for those mega cap stocks that are still undervalued, you know, they run the gamut across a number of different names, a number of different sectors. So besides Alphabet, uh, Berkshire Hathaway is one stock that we do think that is undervalued. In the energy sector, uh, I would highlight Exxon as being you know, one of the better valuations there. And then in some of the consumer areas, you know, Johnson & Johnson, another you know, mega cap stock that we think is undervalued. Coke, Pepsi, both undervalued. And then in the financials, uh, Bank America, as far as one of the larger cap you know, banks that we think is undervalued. David, can I get your reading on the U.S. consumer from here and how you're positioning? Because in the wash up from Thanksgiving and uh, from Cyber Week, we've got the National Retail Federation now forecasting holiday sales in the region of three to four percent that Americans should spend roughly about nine hundred and fifty billion this year. What sort of uh, sense are you getting that the consumer is still willing to spend at this point versus changing some of their spending habits? Well, at this point, we're looking for a 3.2% increase in fourth quarter you know, modified retail sales. And our modified retail sales are essentially our estimate for goods that we think are subject to holiday spending. So we take out things like you know, automobiles, fuel, home building materials, groceries, you know, and so forth. And so that 3.2% projection really is going to be in line or maybe just above, you know, where inflation is going to be. So consumers are definitely under pressure. You know, they're definitely feeling it. But having said that, you know, with jobs, you know, still being relatively plentiful and unemployment being relatively low, you know, people still want to go out and, you know, enjoy the holiday season. Probably the bigger shift I'm looking for this year is going to be how that money is spent. So last year we had you know, a big rebound in foot traffic. You know, once the pandemic had really fallen into the rearview mirror, a lot of people wanted to go back out into the stores, you know, have that holiday experience. You know, but this year with normalized foot traffic, we're only looking for slightly under a 1% increase. So really it's gonna be the online again, that's really gonna see a lot of that benefit. You know, we're looking for online sales to increase 9.3% this year. David, thanks for spelling that out for us. So David Sequeira with us, Chief U.S. Market Strategist at Morningstar. Barclays analysts warn the year-end rally risks eating into New Year gains for 2024. You can read that analysis and much more in our premium service, CNBC Pro. It's always disappointing, isn't it, here that you've got all the, the earnings and uh, the reaction front-loaded for 2023 mm. and that there's nothing coming next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that certainly is disappointing. <laughs> 
Uh, well, let's turn our attention now to a, a story that uh, came through yesterday. Some big news uh, around Berkshire Hathaway. Charlie Munger has died at the age of 99. Warren Buffett's right-hand man at Berkshire Hathaway since 1978 died peacefully in hospital in California. Becky Quick looks back at his life and legacy. Charlie Munger was best known as Warren Buffett's right-hand man. Their investing partnership dating back decades. I would say that every time I'm with Charlie, I've got at least some new slant on an idea that, that causes me to rethink certain things. And and we've had absolutely, we, we've had so much fun in the partnership over the years. It's been almost hilarious. It's been so much fun. Buffett credits the Berkshire Hathaway vice chairman with teaching him the importance of paying up for high quality businesses. When he weaned me away from the idea of buying very so-so companies at very cheap prices, knowing that there was some small profit in, and looking for really wonderful businesses that we could buy at fair prices. It's not that much fun to uh, buy a business where you really hope this sucker liquidates before it goes broke. The willingness to pay for quality paid off for Munger and Buffett in deals like their 1972 purchase of C's Candies and their decision in the late 1980s to buy a substantial stake in Coca-Cola. Before his Berkshire days, Munger owned his own successful investment firm and practiced law. In 1962, he and a group of attorneys founded Munger Tolls, now known as Munger Tolls and Olson, a very prominent law firm. Munger, like Buffett, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and as teenagers, they both worked at Buffett's grandfather's grocery store, but not at the same time as Munger was seven years older. It wasn't until Buffett was in his late 20s and Munger was in his mid-30s and living in California that they were introduced to each other by mutual friends. We had dinner together in 1959. In five minutes, Charlie was rolling on the floor laughing at his own jokes, and I do the same thing. They began to spend hours each week on the telephone, talking investments, and Buffett urged Munger to trade in a career in law for one in investing. I met Charlie, and he was practicing law, and I told him that was okay as a hobby, but it was a lousy business. <laughs> so he, he Fortunately, I listened. <laughs> From 1962 until 1975, Munger's investment partnership produced a 19.8% compound annual return versus just 5% for the Dow. It wasn't until 1978 that Munger formally joined Berkshire as vice chairman. But Munger's even-tempered, risk-averse, and pragmatic approach to investing was a major influence on Buffett from the time they first met, helping Berkshire Hathaway grow into a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that owns well-known businesses like Dairy Queen, Geico, Hellsberg Diamonds, and Burlington Northern. Munger, however, didn't limit himself to just Berkshire. He was chairman of Wesco Financial from 1984 until 2011, when it was totally assimilated into Berkshire. During those years, he was known for his deadpan humor and straight-shooting style at shareholder meetings where he interacted at length with his investors. After Wesco, Munger moved the show and his growing collection of fans to another company where he remained chairman, The Daily Journal. Charlie, yeah. one of my favorite lines from you is you want to hire the guy with the IQ of 130 that thinks it's 120, and the guy with an IQ of 150 who thinks it's 170 will just kill you. You must be thinking about Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> he brought his blistering one-liners to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings, too. What I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots. And luckily, there's a large supply. And professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it, it's, it's just disgusting. It's like 
Somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. Charlie's big on lowering expectations. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the way I got married. My wife lowered her ex expectations. <laughs> and despite a net worth of around $2 billion, for Munger, money wasn't everything. All you succeed in doing in your life is to get early rich from passive holding of little bits of paper. And you get better and better at only that for all your life. It's a failed life. Life is more. than being shrewd at passive wealth accumulation. Well, with that, we're through. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Amazon's AWS cloud unit has announced new chips for customers to build and run artificial intelligence applications on it, as well as plans to offer access to NVIDIA's latest chips. Demand for NVIDIA GPUs has skyrocketed since startup OpenAI released its ChatGPT chatbot last year. Adobe says it is disappointed after the UK's Competition and Markets Authority said its proposed $20 billion Figma acquisition, the largest ever takeover of a private software company, risked hurting competition in the country's digital design space, taking a similar stance to the EU watchdog earlier this month. The CMA says it will release its full report shortly, setting the stage for another tech merger standoff after its months-long effort to stop Microsoft's Activision takeover ended in failure. Apple is looking to end its credit card partnership with Goldman Sachs after a four-year stint, a person familiar with the matter has told CNBC. The iPhone maker, which offers a credit and savings account with the Wall Street Bank, sent Goldman a proposal to terminate its contract in the next 12 to 15 months. The move, should it happen, would effectively end one of the highest profile partnerships between a bank and a tech company. Over at Disney, CEO Bob Iger has told employees he wants to start building again after a period of, quote, fixing when he came back into the role. Speaking at a staff town hall, Iger said his priorities now lie in expanding parks, creating an ESPN streaming service, and improving the studio business. An hour-long uh, conversation is what took place, so no epic. Uh, <laughs> fairly short and sweet to staff. I think the message coming through was that it's about quality, not quantity. Mm. And there was another misfire over the weekend with Wish. It uh, launched over Thanksgiving holiday, another movie that was a flop. And I think if you look mm. at some of the problems that continue to lurk, the studio's business is just not performing anymore. Mm. Uh, Wish is the latest after the Marvels, Indiana Jones, Ant-Man, a series of very poor performing films. So if you look at the performance now since uh, 2014, there's been no film grossing more than a billion dollars so no wow. billion dollar film and that's a problem for Disney because what it produces is expensive 
So it justifies spending more on movies because it has uh, what a production budget of 200 million, 100 million in marketing costs. So getting to, to 500 million worldwide to sort of effectively break even is quite a high benchmark in the industry. It does that because it's got all the product lines, theme mm. parks it can extract out using the brands so, and uh, the streaming release as well. So there's plenty of different touch points mm. for Disney when it launches a film. The problem is having these flops Right. They may have been good enough for a streaming service. They're not good enough for the Disney brand. So it's just one of the challenges I guess facing. You know, when, when you listening to you discuss, you know, the, the importance of the studio business, it really feels like it's back to basics for Disney here. And listening to Bob Iger yesterday, he said when it comes to creating a perception of the company, nothing is more powerful than movies. So really stripping it back to the basics and hearing how much emphasis Disney is putting on the studio side of the business is interesting because we so often talk about it in the context of streaming. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.